What's up, everybody? Not my house. It's in the house. This is your host, Eric, and as always, right next to me is my co-host, Zach. Zach, what's going on this morning? It's an honor today. You know how much I love basketball, and you know how much I appreciate these guys writing at the Big Fan Slam magazine. So this is an honor today. I'm excited. Absolutely. He's a Chicago legend. He's the author of The Last Black Mecca and The Dark Side. Um, I remember him back in the day. First time I heard his, his name was uh, Slam Magazine, like you said, catching all those... Uh, what a groundbreaking uh, magazine that was for basketball, man. I, I had so many of those issues. He's uh, one of the best journalists, writers, ESPN. Um, he's been on so much stuff. He truly does it all. Honored to have him on the show today, Mr. Scoop Jackson. How are you doing today, Scoop? What's up, fellas? How you doing? Thanks for having me. Appreciate oh, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Great to have you on the show. We've had a ton of former Chicago-born guests on the show. But what was your childhood like growing up in Chicago, and how did Chicago shape you? Uh, I mean kind of probably like all the answers you've gotten depending on if you, if you talk to everybody from you know uh, uh Antoine Walker to Isaiah Thomas to Patrick Beverly to Anthony Davis to Jabari Parker to Jalen Brunson you know we all kind of you know come through the same vessel that is Chicago and and, and how it represents us from a basketball standpoint and, and we're just all extensions of this huge uh, Chicago basketball story. And, and even though I didn't make it to the level that a lot of the people that you spoke to did, it's still, you know, as much as part of my DNA as it is theirs. So I think all of our stories are basically similar. Um, as, 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 you know, African-American individuals are being born in Chicago. I think the one thing we can always tell is consistent is I, I don't think we, it, any of us had a choice not to be involved in basketball to some degree. I mean, like one of the first things is putting our hands is a form of a basketball. I don't care if it's a keychain or a ball or piece of paper or, or Nerf basketball or, you know, uh, some rubber thing to bounce with lines on. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's somehow it always starts off with basketball. And that's like our first introduction and a lot of our first loves. And we just take it from there. And uh, my own personal thing was like, same thing. I started playing ball early. I was the first sport that I really, really fell in love with because it was handed to me so early and I'm surrounded by basketball with all my, I mean, just through conversation, not even like hooping, just conversation with my dad and my uncles and, you know, the, you know, the, the, the guys, my mom used to have babysitters, you know, it was, you know, it was basketball first and foremost, basketball, then boxing, then women, and then money, <laughs> you know, well, obviously money always came after it was, we said basketball, boxing, women drinking than money. That was always the conversation in Chicago. So everywhere we went, it was always basketball first. So I kind of came up in that and, you know, started hooping from day one. I can't even tell you when I started hooping. Man. It was like, it, you know, first, second grade, that was it, you know, hoop, nerf hooping. And then, you know, started really taking it to the courts in fourth grade. I think I joined my first basketball league when I was in fourth grade up at Chatham, Chatham YMCA. Joined the Biddy Basketball League, you know, started hooping seriously then and was and hooped everywhere at every stage through then. Every, you know, we used to, me and my boys as we got older and were able to like um, really take the CTA on our own, you know, we would go all over the city. You know, we would, all, I mean, when I mean all over the city, I mean all over the city. Like from, 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 you know, from, from the, from the gardens to Evanston, you know, on the bus, we didn't care. And, uh, you know, Navy Pier, 
the Ickies, you know, we, we really, we, you know, places in K-Town, we really didn't care. We just all about hooping. We take our game anywhere and play against anybody. So that was it coming up. And then in college, uh, as we got older here in the city, we used to have a crew called the Brothers of Walk, B-O-W. And none of us really had any cars back then, so we would walk from park to park. Wherever we could walk, man, we walked like, you know, and right now, you know, the police would have, if this was, if this was then, we get arrested for mob action because you can't walk it, you know, more than three or four or five. You know, we walk like in groups of eight to 15, you know, going to parks, like challenging anybody, like, let's go. You know, sometimes getting our ass beat, sometimes taking names, you know, whatever, you know. And that, that you know, that was it. That, that, that was, that's the whole come up of basketball in Chicago. You know, uh, played high school ball, got cut from the varsity team, wound up playing at a neighborhood center here in Chicago. Won a little championship there. Played, um, didn't really make the squad in college. Uh, walked on and made the practice squad. Um, but played in a real basketball in college, which was equal to, you know, the college ball teams we played with because we went to small NAI school, Xavier in Louisiana. But our, but our, our intramural games were just as good, if not better, than what was happening on the squad. And um, wound up playing. Uh, my career capped off. I played two semi-pro games in Louisiana. I took um, Avery Johnson. He used to play for the Spurs and the coach oh, yeah. of Dallas. He was at Southern University, and when he left to go to the NBA, uh, one of the guys that played for our school uh, named Lewis Johnson, they needed a point guard filling when Avery left. So I played two games of semi-pro in Avery's spot, and that was that, that, that's as far as my little basketball career went. But, you know, once I came back to Chicago, like I said, we the brothers of all. We were going to every park hooping. And, you know, we still, you know, like any other brothers that are my age now, you know, all we do is talk shit about what we used to do. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. And, and, but, and that's really it. Yeah, but all those memories, too. I'm surprised I'm surprised the Chicago Bears didn't hop into that conversation when you were talking about uh, things you talked about back in the day. I mean, the, the Bears were huge in Chicago, right? Or just or not so yeah, much? Bears, Bears, the Bears are massive then. I mean, they were massive then. They were massive. You know, they're massive now. They were massive before my day, but I never really grew up as a Chicago Bear fan or Chicago Cup fan. And it's kind of not their fault to a degree, but um, the Bears are omnipresent in this city, and it's almost as if they could do no wrong. And people love the Bears regardless of what the Bears are, who they are, or what they do. It doesn't make a difference. Chicago has... um, a really, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? Loyal, right? The very it's, loyal. Yeah, it's, this is beyond loyal, man. This is, um, uh, what's the, you know the word I'm looking for. It, it, yeah, it, like Knicks fan, being a Knicks fan. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's, yeah, it's, it's like that where, where it gets to the point where it gets delusional. Yes, yes. And my, but the difference I think between the Knicks and, and, and the Bears, and it's something I hold against the Bears and the Cubs as well, is the media treatment that they get. Mm-hmm. Media loves and speaks on the Bears first and foremost about anything. Anything. And I grew up with that. I never understood why we had teams, you know, we had more important teams back in the day in Chicago, and they would still never get above the fold line love, you know, uh, first news story on, you know, in, in the sports uh, on any sports situation from a news standpoint, 
you know, we could be in the, we could be the middle of a, uh, Michael Jordan and could be in the middle of a basketball playoff championship run and a bear story would still lead the sporting news, you know, in June. Like, wow. what the hell? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Right. So, I, you know, and, and that happened way before even Michael Jordan got here. It happened, you know, to the Blackhawks when, when Stan Makita, those guys were here. You know, I watched it happen. It actually happened to the Cubs, you know, before Walter got here. You know, with the Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, and Ron Santos crew. You know, when Fergie Jenkins was on the mound, it would still be about the Bears. And everywhere you go, you see people in Bears gear, and you know the White Sox. People didn't give a shit about the White Sox. It was always the Bears, <laughs> and me being the South Side dude, I'm like, nah. You know, there's only so much I'm gonna stand on this. So I never really, I really never liked the Bears because, of, like I said, it, they were omnipresent. And they always took center and first stage over everything. And I thought because of that, you know, and, and the media's role in that as well was borderline disrespectful. So it was hard for me to respect the Bears because I thought they got enough and way too much respect over the course of my lifetime in Chicago. And it's respect to me that they didn't earn as a team. You know what I'm saying? They, just, they, they continue to be mediocre, if not less than that. For decades. You, well, and now, they had, had a period where they were winning. Well, yeah, you, know, you had like the you Bulls. All, you all can't even argue this. Their one championship in this city still resonates and means more than the sixth that the Bulls got. I, I believe that. <laughs> I, I, I actually believe that, unfortunately, which is insane because – you know, I mean, the Cubs are huge. I mean, obviously, Michael changed the game, you know, in terms of marketing and all that other stuff. And, and it's and it's still bears. I mean, that's. Yeah. And that's 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 why I didn't, you know, I, you know, I'm like, I can't I can I still can't mess with it. And my, it's worse now because I think what they've done to this city and the BS that they've sold us over the last decade and a half is. Is is. Oh, man, it is basically. um it's, it's another word for unfaithful. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it's a harsher word than it's basically betrayal. Right. That's the word I'm looking for. The lies they told us during the whole Jay Cutler era. You read my mind. <laughs> right. So and they sold us every year on this team and what they were doing and what they were building and what we should expect from them. We know all of that was just lie. Everything they told us was lies and they sold the city lies. And the city has not put blame on them for that. That's so the difference incredible. to me between the Knicks and the Bears is not the feelings, the you know unconditional feelings. That's the word I was looking for earlier, because because it's beyond it's beyond just love affair. This is unconditional love. The unconditional love and feelings that this city has with this team goes beyond that because at least the New York media will call the Knicks organization out. Oh yeah. It will call James Dolan out. Yep. It will call ownership out. That, that may not change anything the way the fans feel, but at least they're trying to bring a sense of fairness I, to I, dealing I, with the Knicks as an organization and how they represent New York. That cannot be said in this city about the Chicago Bears. Oh, with the Knicks, it's the fans that are delusional. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> fans are good ahead. Yeah, they're, they're full of the, uh, a certain amount of hope that I don't know even if Chicago has. Yeah. Chicago has, has a dead delusion, but I think their sense of hope may not be as great from a fan standpoint. 
But oh. that media component is big because the media shapes the way the public thinks. And it shapes public discord and conversation. You're not you're not wrong, man. And especially nowadays with you know, which sounds funny to say podcast because we're on one and, and uh, Twitter and all these things. It's it's amazing. You know, it's like this big sea of everything, you know, and it's like trying to get that information even understood. Or who, or who are you talking to? An intelligent fan, a non-intelligent fan, someone from the media, someone with a burner account. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. I got to ask you this question because I'm curious about this. I know Zach's curious about this, too, is uh How'd you get the nickname Scoop? Did you did you oh. get it a long time ago when you were a kid? Where'd you, where'd you get it? Actually, it was given to me before I was even born. Um, oh, whoa. I was actually born the day after JFK was assassinated. Oh, wow. And um, my father at the time was, he was the first, at the time he was still the only black newspaper reporter in the city of Chicago. And my uncle, my mother's brother, made a joke to my father saying news of him having a son was going to scoop Kennedy. <laughs> and it, right, so they all kind of laughed at it, but right at that point in time, they they labeled me with that. You wow. know, um, I was told early on that that was that like growing up. Um, I was told the scoop was actually on my birth certificate. Like I was told, like my name is Robert in parentheses. I mean, in, in quotation, scoop Arthur Jackson the third because Arthur is my grandfather's name, so I named him my father and my grandfather. Uh, so scoop has been there since birth. And when I was young, it wasn't even Scoop. They would call me Scoopy. They put the Y on it. You know, they try to always do that with kids. You know, they right, right, right. put the Y on anything. So, so that's what I came up as. So it's, it's been there since birth. And I found out later on, as I got older, when I really looked at my birth certificate, um, Scoopy's not on there. Or Scoop's not on there. But, it, it's you know, it's been there my whole life. But what I did find out, and this is really funny, more important than how I get the name Scoop, is the fact that I was named Robert the Third after my father. Come to find out later on in life that my father's name was not Robert. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> you learn all sorts of stuff. Right, right. On his birth certificate, it's his actual name is Bobby. Oh wow! Right, his literal name is Bobby. Like it's not Robert. So technically, I'm named after my grandfather. And I'm not a third. I'm really the second. Okay. I mean, so I, yeah, so yeah, so you, you know, it's it's, it's, that, it's it's different. So we call my father now. My father's nickname now is King Bobby. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sure he. I'm sure he appreciates that name too. Oh, he. Oh, look, he was calling himself King. He was calling himself King way before any of that. You know, my baby. Look, we yeah. just solidified. Look, my father's birthday is January fifteenth. The same day as Dr. King's. And growing up, he was like, no, no, this it's not King's birthday. It's my birthday, damn it. This is my <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, my father's a special dude. Yeah. Hey, uh, I got to ask just because we've had a lot of Chicago legends on the show. Uh, Ronnie Fields, Will Gates. Uh, I mean, we've, we've had a lot. And uh, you mentioned before how you went park to park with a lot of your friends and everything like that and really always found a place to play. And I mean, the black top, top game is such a lost art in today's game, I feel like. Yeah. I feel like we've really gotten away from that in today's basketball. And I'm just curious how that shaped you, not necessarily what the black top scene was like, but how did the black top shape you uh, just in like your career moving forward? And did you go up against any familiar names that, that our listeners might know? Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, we played with a bunch of everybody from back in the day to the, uh, man, the, 
I'm trying to. Yeah, we used to, man, I don't, I don't think there's too many people we didn't hoop against uh, back then. I, I think uh, my coming up, um, yeah, it was, uh, man, it was Greg Willie I hooped against. I remember playing against Ricky Green um, at Chicago State once, man. And, and it, look, man, um, Ricky Green, you know, we always heard coming up with Ricky Green because he's a little older than me. He was the fastest cat to ever, like, he's the fastest cat out of Chicago. And yeah. I'll never forget, man, in a game, and I ain't get that much playing time because I wasn't on that level, but i never forget, man, trying to get to a loose ball by half court. He beat me to the loose ball, but when he beat me to the loose ball, he is so fast that when he went by me, my jersey went like that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like somebody turned on a fan, man. I had never seen somebody. He got to the ball and went by my jersey, just literally like moved. I'm wow. Like, wow. Yeah. Like he was um, yeah, that 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 dude was special. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of dudes that were coming up, man. I mean, I played ball with I mean Mike Conley and Pierre Cooper and I played high school basketball together. So we played against the Walter Downies and the Barney Mines and you know, I think who, who's uh, who was my man? At, uh, who were the guards at us? Uh, I can't remember who was at CBS and South Shore back then. You know, uh, playing against you know guys who played high school ball there. Just you know, just being just being all over the city, man. Just yeah. just being all over the city and, and and seeing and you know just playing against guys and getting dogged out by guys. You know, um, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's a whole bunch we can you know we can mention. You know oh, yeah. that, that, that you know that I could just. Throughout that, I, I wouldn't even know where to start at. Um, or even guys you played I against said, well, that you didn't know. What I say is that, you know, I playing against, uh, and not really against him, but because he was younger than us, but we came up, the park that we used to go to, everybody in, in Chicago always has their home park. And there's a park that's closest to your home that you frequent, and that's your spot, right? I came up on 79th and Luella, so our spot was Eckersall Park on 82nd and Yates. So that was a park we all walked to, got a game in. And I remember I was a young guy and, you know, I had to earn my right to get onto the big court because there was a little court that all the young dudes had to play on. You had to earn your right to get on the big court. I remember I finally got on the big court. Now, the young guy, before I went away to school, that was under, like, he was the young guy who was working his way to get up to the big court, even though he was good enough to play on the big court, was Tim Hardaway. Because Tim's four years younger than me. Tim Tim lived two blocks away from me. So he was the young guy. So when I went away to college, when I left Eckersaw Park, you know, because I was, you know, playing ball up there with those guys uh, and in my backyard. But when I left, the little point guard that took over Eckersaw Park was Timmy Hardaway. So by the time I came back from school, you know, you know, every summer I was like, they were like, nah, man, Timmy's running things up here now. And Timmy was no joke. Like, yeah. Bug, Bug, was, Bug was amazing. You know, so coming up, you know, coming up around those cats. Yeah. So those those are the guys, you know, I used to come. And, you know, I made my mind answer to answer your 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 concrete, your blacktop question. It's funny because we came up in the day before blacktop took over. We were still playing on the, you know, the Chicago cool gray concrete, you know, right. before they started laying their blacktop down. So yeah, so we would play on the concrete. And I think my my outside ball, my, my hooping days on the concrete retired, but we were playing up uh, 31st Street, right? 
right by where Lake Meadows is and where um, the hospital used to be across the street, you know, played up on 31st Street. It was a game. We played up there. The, man, Ed and Sky and all the, like, all the OGs, we up there hooping. And there was a play. I forgot. I, forgot, I, don't, I don't know who this dude was. We just playing ball. And there was a three-on-two fast break. And I'm on defense. Dude comes down court. And there's a bunch of people out there because it's summertime. So everybody's kind of waiting to get in games this and that. And I'm backpedaling. So I'm watching the guy. You know, I'm watching the guy who's running point with the ball. And I got a guy right here on the wing, right? So I'm like, you know, backpedaling but got my eye on both. The guy on the wing did some shit to me that I'm telling you a story because this is the that, – that I, I retired from playing ball on the inner parks after that. It was the, my, my, my day was done. He shook me before he even got the ball. So I'm backpedaling, right, watching the guy running point on this three-on-two, right? We get to back by about the top of the key, coming back. Dude, the wing guy, to my left, stutter steps and freezes me. You got to understand this. Before the dude with the ball even passed in the ball. So when he freezes me, I stop. Man, dude ran right by me. Point guard dropped the dime behind me because I had already frozen, man. The whole park went nuts. Like, oh! I was like, all right, that's it. That's it. You knew right there. Yo, I look. I, I look. Like done. After, after the point, I told dude, I said, give me the ball right now. I went down court. I scored. Put my arm around dude's neck. I said, don't you ever do no shit like that to me again. <laughs> That's awesome. After we lost that game, I was like, I'm done. I'm retired. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't stand to get embarrassed like that ever again. It's like, That's man, and you do talk about that. Is it? You got shook and dude even had a ball. How you get shook without the ball? I'm like, man, stop. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's that was amazing. that was that was the last of my blacktop stories. I like after that, man. All I did was shoot around. I go out the course, maybe shoot around, and that's it. I don't do anything, and no, yeah. no competition. Those days were over after that. Yeah, and I mean, you you just told us that story, so you got to adapt yourself up a little bit. I mean, because uh, I know our listeners are curious, what kind of basketball player were you? Like, if you had to compare yourself, like what type of player were you? And like, who are some guys that you looked up to? Like, who are some of your basketball? I mean, players? Isaiah, Isaiah was the one that uh, you know everybody looked up to, and everybody tried to be like. Um, I'm a little guy, so I'm, I'm, I'm much smaller than Isaiah, but I always try to do everything that he did on the court. Um, yeah, so, but I think if there was a comparison, I don't know, I was, um, I was smart, but I didn't make all the best basketball decisions. I was a consummate point guard. Uh, I think uh, my ability to score was always there, but I didn't have the greatest jump shot. Um, I tried to be a defensive dog. I was always a lot stronger than I looked. Um, I didn't mind mixing up with the big guy down there because, you know, we grew up playing varsity in 21, so you have to learn how to rebound. Um, I always came to games with the concept that you may be able to stop me from scoring, but you can't stop me from dropping down to getting assists. So, uh, but I was, I was, I'm trying to think if there's a player that could, I always got told when we were like in college that, I was like a right-handed Johnny Dawkins. As, as I got that a lot. Okay. okay. You know, uh, but small, of course. But, you know, my game, you know, even playing ball, my teammates are like, you know, you, you like Johnny Dawkins. You know, and I guess that's the fairest comparison 
I can give. But, uh, you know, between Isaiah Thomas and Gus Williams for uh, Seattle, I always wanted to play like the Wizards. He was amazing to me. Yeah. Gus Williams was incredible. But um, I was just too small. I never reached those stages. I think from a talent standpoint, I had that type of, you know, close to that talent. Um, I probably didn't put as no work as it should have, but it wasn't like I was trying to chase the NBA dream. I was just hooping because we love hooping. That's what we do for Chicago. Yeah. But I was able, you know, um, I think I was able to go around this entire city and play ball in the parks and, and hold myself up against damn anybody. And that's saying something. You know, so, you know, I, I, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was decent, man. I, I wasn't fake decent. I was decent. You know, casting his name, like, no, he could, you know, cause as, as, as a journalist, man, and as a media member that really concentrates on basketball, you know, there happens to be some validation that people want to get from you to see if you actually did play the game. Right. And, you know, Cass, I did play with who came up with me like, no, he's official. Nice. You know, and they don't give me that official pass as an ask us anything. They who me like, he was decent. And I, I you know, I hold on, like, I was decent. Yeah. I had, I had a really decent, respectable Chicago run, you know. Um, and, you know, I went to school in Louisiana. Like I said, I played ball down there. Um, you know, I, I was, look, I was decent enough to, you know, uh, play two semi-pro games. <laughs> well, and, you know and, and for Avery Johnson too, right? I right, mean, right, 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 no but, slouch. Right, right. But I mean, but think about it. I'm only like, I'm only five, six, a hundred and probably 35 pounds. You know, I'm a light, I'm a load guy. Yeah. But you know, you got to fight to hold your own. Yeah. You absolutely. know, so, you know, there was, I was always a, a mismatch problem because I could always get posted up real easy, but I had, had a little bit of strength. I couldn't really stop too many people, but you know, I had good hands. Uh, I was always willing to like, you know, I was one of those, you know, baseline to baseline, you know, how we do in Chicago. We don't wait till you get to half court to start guarding. You know, we're we going to guard you from the rip, you I know, studying, it. always tried to lead whatever team I was, I was on or played for, lead them in steals, you know, either it was on ball or off ball. Nice. I think my biggest problem was that um, I was halfway coachable. <laughs> I was halfway coaching. No, because you know, it, it wasn't dying. Listen to I, I just think I was so young and trying to learn how to what it takes to run a team. Yeah, I think I had the talent to do it. I just, you know, it's like, eh, you know, I, and, and a lot of times at the age I was at, I didn't think about running a team, and I don't think I really got what it took to run a team until I got to college. And that's you huge. Know, my high school career, you know, and playing high school ball here wasn't about running a team. It was about doing what you got to do, you know, to get everybody else involved. And that's not running a team. And then showing cats that you can still hoop that nobody's going to take advantage of. Right. So, right. Great yeah, but I was, I was, I was, I was okay. I was, I was, I was pretty decent, man. I was pretty decent, you know. Let's, uh, let's talk about the other side, right? So what got you interested in writing? Was it uh, journalism class in high school, things like that? I mean, obviously your father. I mean, what, what got you into writing and how'd you find a love for it in terms of, you know, the great career you've had for it? I, I, I grew up a magazine guy, man. You know, my okay. father was, a, you know, a newspaper reporter. And I've always had, uh, I guess the, the gene I took from that wasn't the writing component as much as it was to, you know, gathering and researching information and getting information. Um, I never really fell in love with the reporting side of journalism because I thought it was always a little too invasive, you know, and kind of watching my father from the sidelines, you know, be a reporter and understand what he, what he, what he did and chasing down news stories. You know, I've, I was always like, oh, that's, you know, it's, it's almost unfair to the subject matter. 
you know, for you all to just be running up with microphones, you know, to their homes while they're getting out of their cars, evading their offices, you know, I was like, oh, you know, is there any sense of, I was like, nah, that, that, that. I didn't, you know, it's hard for me as a young guy to have respect for that. So I never saw myself as a reporter. That wasn't something I thought I want to be my, my father to be a reporter. You know, but I, already, I always appreciated the writing side of what he did. My mother was a great writer as well, but she wasn't a journalist or anything. She was a great writer. So I've always grown with an affinity towards writing because I guess that was kind of in the household and we read a lot and all this and the other. Um, but it, I was a magazine guy. So it wasn't really until high school that I wanted to like, not really be a journalist. I just wanted to have my own magazine because I was reading other magazines. And there's a lot of things I wanted to do, but the magazine piece, my, one of my best friends in high school, we were both artists at the time and I've always grown up sketching and drawing and all this and the other. And my boy Brad, he was, he was, he was amazing. He still is a great, one of the greatest graphic artists I run across to this day. We always said coming up, we're going to have our own magazine, you know, reading Rolling Stone magazine and, you know, right on magazine and, Billboard magazine and you know all, all all you know all the bad Street and Smith mag all the magazines we're like we would have our own magazine and a lot of it was like kind of based on Rolling Stone because Rolling Stone was much more of a cultural magazine it wasn't just music but we would look at what Rolling Stone didn't cover when it came to our culture and we understood that there was a big culture in ours that and there were stories that are inside the black community um, and, and in our lives that Rolling Stone never paid attention to. You know, so while you're growing up in the 80s and the only, you know, black artist that they would cover would be Michael Jackson. Right. You'd be like, yo, how come, how come you're not talking about like Lakeside? How come you're not talking about Confunction? How come you ain't talking about Cameo? How come you ain't, you know, talking about, we could, you know, go through all the Shaka Khan, you know, we yep. can go through all these other great artists. The only thing you're talking about is Motown and Michael Jackson. And that's it from a cultural standpoint, musically. And that's all you're covering. So. Myself, I'm like, I want to have my own magazine. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm going to do what they're not doing. And Brad was on the same thing. I'm going to do what they're not doing. But I say that all to say it wasn't just about journalism, but that's what I think in my mind went when it came to, like, leaning into journalism when that time came, that I've always wanted to, like, tell stories in that vein starting in high school. And Brad and I were like, yeah, we're going to have our own magazine. And moving, you know, moving forward on that, that never really left. Uh, when I went away to school, I didn't study journalism and I, you know, I studied um, uh, political science in order to become a lawyer because I had an uncle that was a lawyer that I like kind of, you know, wanted to follow behind, you know, and, and, and when you're a kid, you know, your family is always like, you know, like I said, it wasn't any chasing any basketball dreams or anything like that. You know, my mother was, was an educator, so she was no joke, like, you're going to get a degree and you're going to get a degree in this and all this and the other. So, you know, law was one of those things like, yeah, okay, you want to study law, you study law. And growing up in Chicago, I've always loved politics. I mean, you can't because that's, that's damn near the foundation of this whole city. Yep. You talked about the importance of basketball. The other foundation in Chicago, probably the first foundation in Chicago is politics. Yeah. So, you know, growing up and, you know, having politics in your household, from the time you wake up to the time you eat dinner, you know, to the time you go to sleep, you know, um, and understanding trying to be a lawyer, they say, oh, well, your first line of studying and wanting to be a lawyer is political science. That comes before you get into pre-law. So when I went away to school, I studied, you know, uh, political science. And uh, I wound up leaving school 
after two years because of money situations. And when I went back, I, you know, the time off really allowed me to think about, is this really what I'm interested in? You know, when, when, when you're 17 and 18 going away to school, you think you know what you want to do. Then when you get into it, you're like, mm, this ain't what I thought it was. So let me rethink it, you know. And at the time, I knew that my last, it's funny how this works, my last couple of years of school, because we're going through money issues, I was going to have a great input, if not all of the input, on paying those next two years off. And, you know, I, you know, I had, had to settle the balance so I can go back to school. But the next two years in order to stay in school, the bulk of that was going to come from me. So my whole mindset changed on like, all right, now I'm paying for this. So why not study what I want to study? <laughs> yeah. And I, as I said earlier, I always had an interest in trying to have my own magazine. I love music. Uh, outside of that, I wanted to be a program director for either WGCI or, you know, V103, which is WBMX back then, because, you know, our radio stations go. They play the same, they play six songs the whole day. And I'm like, I know much more about music than these program directors. I'm gonna go to school to take over radio stations. So I really was like, you know what? I like mass media. You know, I, I love advertising television commercials. I love television. I love radio and music. I love that. You know, I, I love print media, you know, reading newspaper. I wanna have my own, that's all mass communication. That's all mass media. So I wound up switching my major when I went back to school. And that's yeah. when the writing piece kind of started to come into shape because journalism and, you know, mass media is a part of mass communications. And that's, to answer your question, when it really started to tap in, really started to tap in because we started studying it, you know, and, and looking at journalism as, as not only a craft, but as an access to telling stories, you know, right. from that standpoint. And that's when I think, I got a greater understanding of what my father was doing because now I was studying it. It wasn't just watching what he was doing as somebody on the sidelines, not having, you know, a foundation of what news reporting really is. You know, now I was studying it from an academic standpoint, you know, and, and, and getting to, and also because I wound up doing an internship at a radio station as a news reporter then, so now I'm getting firsthand experience on what this really is. Not necessarily yeah. writing, but reporting stories and gathering news and getting this out of the other. So while I looked at my father and like running up on people, you know, and subject matters with the microphone and a tape recorder trying to get stories, now I'm doing the same thing. You know, and you learn, you learn that that's, it's much more to that than that, that there's almost an art to that. Right. And there's a way you could do this without just being invasive. And it's not just about being invasive. It's about trying to find different ways to gather this information to tell a story. So I'm learning all that at the time when I'm in college because the study piece gave me different insight. And, you know, that's when the writing and understanding the power of writing and, you know, you know, when I started studying, you know, mass communications, I really got to understand what writing was. And that's when it really hit me that, okay, now I understand what needs to be done in order to make this happen. And yeah. it's, it's not just happenstance. This is what you have to put into it to find some success in, in, in this area. And, you know, as in anything else, I think you all understand this without me saying it, but that's when, you know, you start taking shit serious. Yeah. And that's when the writing started. You know, it, it wasn't just fun and games and stuff. It's like, okay, it went from like in high school, I want to have my own magazine, you know, and I want to 
you know, possibly be the program director, radio station, all that, and the other two, once you start studying it, all right, this is what I have to do to make this happen. And the more I study this, the more I immerse myself in this, there's a stronger chance of these things happening. There's a stronger chance of me putting myself in position to make these things happen. So now you start looking at it, you start taking it seriously. And that's where that shift started to come from. Yeah. And it's amazing how driven you were back then as, uh, you know, so early into it. And I got to ask when you're doing all the studying, um, you know, in, in that field, there must've been a writer that really stood out to you that really inspired you to maybe, um, inspired your style of writing. Like, do you have, do you have an author or writer yeah, anybody yeah, yeah. that really inspired that? Yeah. The one who really did it for me was Nelson George. And at the time, Nelson George was the, um, he was the R and B columnist for billboard magazine. Um, and me being, like I said, deep in the music, you know, uh, the advantage I had then, because one of my work study jobs when I was in school was I worked in the library. And because I worked in the library, I had access to Billboard magazine without having to pay for it. So I could always go into the library, you know, either early or stay late. And I could grab Billboard magazine off the news rack, you know, and read it. And I would always read Nelson George because he was doing he was doing for Billboard magazine, but I just spoke about what Rolling Stone wasn't doing. Yeah. You know, and this is like, and by this time, this is the mid 80s. So this is 84, 85, 86. And we're right now in the early, late beginning stages of hip hop. Right. So I was learning in New Orleans, Louisiana about EPMD. Nice. You know, learning about Russell Simmons and Def Jam Records, you know, learning about, you know, Schooly D, you know, because Nelson George was writing about these dudes because he was reporting for Billboard magazine on the black music scene from New York. Yeah. That's all the stuff that's jumping off. Now, me being from Chicago, we deep in the house music still. We deep in the house, house and stepping music. So we're still doing our mixing thing. House music was that was and that's you all probably too young to remember that, but that's when house music was at its apex. Like this is right before the world takeover of house music when Chicago was really establishing what the foundation of house music was. And, you know, me being 20, 21, and that's all we were doing. We started spinning records in high school, man. And we were making a friends of mine. I went to high school that, you know, my contemporaries, the, the Farley Keys and the Steve Hurley's, and the Keith Nunleys and, the, you know, Jesse Saunders and the Wayne Williams, all these, we're all the same age for the most part. So you're watching your friends, you know, guys, you know, from high school to Alan Keys, you know, Alan King was a hell of a basketball player. People forget that. And so was Tony Hatchett, Andre Hackett, but they, they were hell of basketball players, right? But they were still DJing. They were, they were the early stages of building the house foundation. And you go from seeing those cats and Steve Hurley as well. From the, your high school dudes, they start making their own records. Yeah. You know, so the same thing is really going on in New York from a hip hop standpoint, where all these young guys were like rapping on the streets and rapping at parties to the right, getting record deals and making their own records. And that culture galvanizing behind that, we had that going on in Chicago. But I was reading about what's going on in New York. And that's why Nelson George became so important to me because I was reading his writing. He was doing more than reporting, he was telling stories about, you know, this culture, this next black culture 
that was coming into prominence in America. And it was hip hop. And reading that really got me hooked on, wow, there's actually a lane for black people to tell our own stories. And I'm watching this brother do this. And, you know, like I said, me saying, I want to have my own magazine one day. If I'm going to do it, this is the way I'm going to build it because this is the way I'd like just the words in this magazine to shape itself. So it was that, that was that, that, that was that one writer to answer a question. We really did it. But it's also another individual who did one thing. We had a professor at our school, Xavier University in New Orleans, Louisiana, and his name was Dr. Kent. And he was the chairperson of the communications department. And this was that life-altering moment I had as a writer that made me really understand what writing was about. I told you, I said earlier, that was really part of, part of the television thing. I really love commercials. And because uh, I thought commercials were really clever and when done well, they, they, they resonated with you, you know? And I always liked that aspect of it. So I came to class one day and told Dr. Ken, I said, you know what? I want to get in advertising because I understood, you know, what advertising was and the role it played in, you know, selling things and commercials and all that. Stuff. He said, all right, man, look, do me a favor. Next class you come to, next class, I want you to write me a story about this paperclip. And he literally handed and put a paper paperclip on my desk. And was like, hand me a story. I, I want a story about this paperclip for next class. I'm like, it didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, okay, cool, no problem. He didn't give me any contact boundaries, but he immediately did that after I said I wanted to get in advertising. And I thought for two days, you know, I'm like, you know, what the hell, you know, what, I don't, you know, I'm like, I don't know what the hell you say about it. I, I, it didn't register to me. It didn't register. Yeah. I came back, I said, Dr. Ken, I, 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 I don't understand. I got nothing. It's a paperclip. It holds paper together. That's, you know, that's what it does. There, there's, there's nothing to write about. This is, you know, it's a paperclip. <laughs> And he said, that's advertising. He said, advertising is you making me believe that I need this paperclip in my life. And all advertising starts with something written. All those commercials you watch, see, you watch commercials. You think that's cute. You think that's what advertising is. That's not what advertising is, son. Advertising is you making me believe that this paperclip is essential to my existence. And why I need this paperclip, not any other paperclip. This particular paperclip, this brand of paperclip, I need to have. I need to leave my house and go spend money on. Wow. That's advertising. Blew my mind. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. And I still hold on to that concept to this day as a writer, like 40 years later. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it gets to the core of what you have to do in order to move people. And with your words. And, you know, when Dr. Kidd told me that, he made me look at the power of writing in a way I never looked at it before. Never yeah. looked at it before. It went way beyond just him explaining to me what advertising was. Right. It made me understand the power of the written word and what your responsibility and job happens to be once you start putting pen to paper. Yeah. You know, and he, he told me, he told me, he said, and he made another great point that he's like, he said, Steven Spielberg made you have compassion for an alien. <laughs> and I never looked, I never looked at E.T. that way. I was like, damn, he did. <laughs> yeah, but, but he really, he really found a way to make me understand the power 
of writing. Now, yeah. you know, how you apply that writing, whether it's if you're an author, whether you're a screenwriter, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a reporter, whatever form of writing you want to shape it in, that power of doing it still resides in you. Yeah. And between Nelson George and reading him all the time in Billboard magazine and Dr. Kent giving me that life lesson about writing, I was good. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So the, the, those, those are the two answers. So it wasn't just one writer. It was Nelson. He was at the forefront. It was yeah. Nelson. But then yeah. Dr. Kent played a big role in that. And there was a third one, but he happened in high school. And I can't forget him. But Alice Haley it was was always like the creme de la creme for us because for for, for me. Because coming up, the two most important books that I had read as a child were the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was done by Alex Haley, and Roots, which was written by Alex Haley. Yeah. And you know, to read those books, and I'll never forget, man, my stepfather read Roots in one day. That was the most phenomenal thing I'd ever seen in my life. I'm like, that's a that's a 700 page book. My stepfather was a genius though. But he read it in one day. And I'm like, if he can read it one day, then hell, you know, I can at least read it in a week. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was, for me, that connection to one individual, yeah, I still to this day say, I think Alan Taylor is probably the greatest writer ever because, you know, because of the, because of the books. I mean, you think about the role those books have played in, in history, especially black history. Yeah, he was that guy. So before I even like, you know, I, I don't want to leave him out of the question you asked about. Was there a single author? Because he played a role in my life, probably bigger than my father's yeah. because of what he was because of the, the 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 things that he wrote and how they resonated with me and the importance that they always had in my life. And then once I got into college, I started reading his Playboy interviews, which were to me uh, the they shape the way I wound up approaching the craft of interviewing individuals and reading the way he was able to speak to individuals. It just wasn't his writing. His writing stood alone. But then to really read his interviews with Dr. King, read his interviews with JFK, read his, you know, all the interviews with Bobby Kennedy, just, you know, all the individuals, the, the you know, not celebrities, but, but important people in our society. Yeah. And how he interviewed him and the stories he got and, you know, the questions he asked and the depth of answers he was able to get. You know, Alex Haley changed everything for me. Starting in high school with, you know, autobiography of Malcolm X and Bruce, but then in college, reading, read, reading his works in Playboy magazine, you know, just his interview style was like unbelievable. And I, I, I couldn't understand why they never had Alex Haley on 60 Minutes. Because yeah. 60 Minutes always prided itself as like, we are the best interviewers in the world. We have the best journalists and writers and, you know, our reporters and this and that. I'm like, Alex Haley is the greatest interview of, our, of all time. Why is he a correspondent for 60 Minutes? I never understood that in college. Yeah. I never and it was an easy thing to be like, oh, it's a race thing. You know what I'm saying? It's easy. Like, nah, y'all just don't want it because he's black, you know. Um, and I don't know if that be true. I don't know it to be false either. You know what I'm saying? But, um, yeah, I always wondered that because in reading his interviews in college, I, they, they, they resonated with me differently and, and, you know, um, they played a large role in how I've always tried to approach 
that area of journalism, which I think is very important and essential to you being a decent journalist is how you construct interviews. So Yeah. And I love hearing about that. That's a fantastic answer. Like I love hearing about the people that really shaped great writers or players like yourself, you know, so I really appreciate you sharing that answer. And you you talk, yeah. And you talk about the power of writing and everything. I mean, you had a huge impact on me. You're a huge reason why I love basketball. And so it'd be criminal for me not to ask about slam magazine, but how'd you really get started in slam? Because I remember having slam ups and hanging up the covers and I love the trash talk section. So how'd you get involved? And was there maybe a favorite cover article that you're most proud of? Um, wow. The one I'm probably most proud of is not really necessarily a cover, but it is a cover, but it's the cover in the entire issue. Uh, do I have to say, I mean, I say, should I separate? It's really probably the Allen Iverson one that is that, that became the first throwback issue. Yeah. Um, and because there's a story behind that. Um, and not 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 the first Allen Iverson cover, which is a story within itself, but the Allen Iverson cover where we blew out his hair through the I remember that. song. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I have that one. Yeah, yeah, because to me, that's to me, and I think you could ask the editor in chief, Tony Gervino. I think we would be in agreement, and probably Dennis Page, the publisher, may agree with us as well. He may think differently, but that issue was important because not because of Allen Iverson, but because we had been trying to get Julius Irving. Like we've been doing backstories and one of the found we've always felt the foundation of Slam magazine was always the old school stories that we told. And that's probably that's that's kind of the reason Dennis built the magazine. He didn't really build it to be a contemporary sports illustrated. He wanted to like get to the root of the culture of basketball that had been overlooked for the most part by like outlets like the sporting news and sports illustrating all this that, and the other you know where they, where they where they were always concentrating on the sport of basketball but never looking at the culture of basketball and there were so many stories that were being untold you know from the um you know from the professional level down to the playground level and dennis always looked at slam magazine as that outlet that above and beyond anything we are going to try to get right these stories Right. The Pete Maravich stories, the John Havlicek stories, the Earl Monroe stories, the, you know, the Curtis Jones story out of Detroit, the, you know, Ray Lou stories, the playground legends of, you know, John Hammond and, you know, uh, Earl Matigo, you know, whoever out of New York, you know, the cast that we never heard or nobody ever heard of before, right. you know, uh, the, the, the stories of the ABA you know, like the Roger Browns and the George McGinnises and the Louis Dampiers, you know, get, getting their stories correct. Uh, telling the stories of like Billy Ray Bates out of Portland, who's like, a, you know, you know, telling, getting into the root of the culture of basketball, telling those stories, that's always been the foundation of slam. But we understood of those individuals in the history of the game, Julius Irving was up here. Right. Like he was the get, get, get. We had talked to Michael Jordan, but we were still searching for Julius Irving. You know what I'm saying? Like Michael Jordan was like, eh, we had Michael's whatever. Yeah. Julius Irving was the big gift for us. And we we had been waiting a long time and we had been trying and trying and trying and trying to get Julius Irving. And we had all these concepts like this is our big get. Like our whole mindset was like, once we get Julius Irving, we're established. Like we're for real. Yeah. And we finally got Julius Irving. And it wasn't because he was avoiding us. 
And he told us straight up, he said, no. He said, people tend to think that I am like this end all be all of the history of this part of basketball, the pre-magic, pre-Larry Bird basketball, that I am that guy and everything revolves around me and it doesn't. He said, but what I want to, I want to see if you all were going to get into the other individuals. I wanted to see if you all were serious about this. So I waited, but I watched you all do stories on Elgin Baylor. I watched you all do stories on Connie Hawkins. He said, I watched you all pay attention to the other parts of the game that yeah. were just as important as I was. And once I realized you all were serious about this, then I was like, okay, they get it. Now it's time, because you could do me in and forget everybody else. And they said, that's what a lot of people have done. They told my story and acted like these other stories before me didn't exist. Yeah. Like I said, the Roger Browns, the Connie Hawkins, the Elgin Baylors, like they didn't exist. But oh, we got Julius Irving, oh, he takes care of everybody. He said, that's not fair. It's never been fair to anybody. You know, you, you're missing the Oscar Robinson story. You know what I'm saying? You're missing the Spencer Haywood story. You're missing the Dave Bing story. You're missing all these stories. Right. So Julius wanted to make sure that we were serious about this. So he had us waiting. But he never told us until we got it. Once he agreed to do that. Now, once he agreed to do the story, our whole thing was, all right, this is our big get. We shot Julius Irving for the cover of that magazine. That, like, we had never had a throwback, you know, uh, old school, a legend. Like, we, we, we shot him in sepia tone, man. It was, like, beautiful, all of a sudden, you know. Dennis is like, as much as I want to do this, this isn't going to sell. We, we, we need to do a contemporary, you know, somebody right now playing has to get that. Yeah. So it's like, there's a Philly connection. We got the big Julius Irving story. Play with the Sixers. You know, we could do, we could do Philly. Allen Iverson's in Philly. We get Allen. And that's where Tony Gervino's genius comes in. And I've said, you know, I've said many times, I've worked with three geniuses in my life. He is one of them. It was in that moment that Tony came up with the entire package idea. He said, well, instead of just telling an old school story, why don't we do a whole throwback issue to the ABA, connecting Julius to not just the ABA, but to Philadelphia. But we yeah. tell it through Allen Iverson. Not in speaking, but as the cover. Like, the concept that we had was to have Julius Irving on the cover of the magazine with a net, you know, whatever, you know, just have that and sell the old school, you know, classic legends issue. Yeah. But why not take contemporary with Dennis Page one? Dress Allen Iverson up to tell both sides of Julius Irving's story. Philadelphia standpoint and with the ABA basketball and with the Afro. Yeah. So that whole thing is an ode to Julius Irving and us getting him. But Tony packaged it as a throwback issue. I'm like, this is so brilliant. Yeah. And to understand that nobody even gets the connection of how that issue came about, but that cover was so dope, it just stands on its own. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And knowing that when it came out, when we looked at it, when we got the blue lines back on that issue, when we're able to look at that whole issue and like, wow. Like, this is some brilliant shit right here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, seriously, this is some brilliant. <laughs> and that cover, knowing everything that's involved in that, knowing we finally got the Julius Irving story and we got it done right. You know what I'm saying? We got this Allen Iverson cover. We got this concept issue. You know, our first real concept issue and we got it right. 
You know what I'm saying? We got Allen to do something that he'd never done before. Like, yeah. never. He's like, I ain't, I ain't taking out my brain for anybody. But for y'all, I'll do it. You know? And knowing yeah. that what we did with him prior to that earned his trust and respect for us to do that. So all of that stuff came together. And I said earlier that we said when we ever got the Julius Irving story that we knew we had made it. But we got the Julius Irving story plus some. So that's that issue right there, that cover, that whole, that everything about that, that's always the one that stands out to me because that's when I think we knew as a team, as a brand, as a business model, as a magazine, I think that's when we knew we were good. And it goes back to our earlier discussion when you're talking about the paperclip. Because I still have that cover in my head right now. Listen to you talk about it. I can still see that cover. You know, you knew with Dr. J that he wanted you guys to talk about all the other stories. So you knew he wasn't going to have a fit if he wasn't on the cover. You know, tying the two together, you had Alan Iverson's trust because what I had read was that you almost quit slam because of the first time with Alan not like you be champion him being on the cover right and because- I, wasn't, I wasn't gonna quit I, the words came out of my mouth i told this lady man if you don't put alan on the cover i'm out so the words actually did come out of my mouth but i wouldn't look my wife was not gonna let my black ass like even <laughs> think about like like shut up you know so <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah, and, so no, no. So go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, no, no, you're fine. Like, no, no, it wasn't it, the, the words quit did like leave did come out my mouth. And I think Dennis knew I wasn't going anywhere either. He's like, man, shut up. You know. <laughs> it's that perfect synergy, man. Like everything came together and you guys knew and it's and it's and I, I like I said, I still remember I can see that cover. I know Zach, you can see that cover in your oh, mind yeah. too. I mean I still it, have that cover somewhere. You know? I mean <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. Slam was such an important magazine too, because I think it did speak of culture and I think it was yeah. that that you know i mean when i was a kid growing up you had sports illustrated you know you had sporting news you had you know you didn't have a ton and you didn't have from a bunch of different perspectives and rolling stone's a great point that you bring up too because rolling stone was one of those where they did take on social issues you know and it wasn't just a music magazine you know it was like playboy another thing that people don't realize is you go back and you and you read those playboy articles it's like oh my playboy was out of control uh, and they always joke around, like, oh, yeah, I read it just for the articles. Ha-ha, wink-wink. Right. Wink. But, like, right. legitimately. Legit. The- no, no, it's legit. It's yeah. Legit. Absolutely. Uh, Wait, I'm going to give you a quick little Easter egg on this. I don't even know if you paid attention to this. You talk about the Allen Iverson cover, the throwback cover. Yeah. If you go back and look at that cover, do you understand that he has a wife beater on under that jersey? Yes. And do you know that that shot of showing that wife beater, wife beater is – purposeful it wasn't a messed up shot that's on purpose so the little hint of the white t-shirt up under there kind of coming off a little bit yeah yes you talk about culture that was done on purpose like it wasn't like we saw it he readjusted his stuff and we're looking through the lens and it's like oh you know he should no keep that right there you know what i'm saying yeah that little nugget is so authentic yeah. To the culture. You know what I'm saying? It's so authentic to the culture of just basketball. We're not gonna dress it up and try to clean it up. No, leave that there. You know, that's and, cool. and and that's Alan's favorite part of that photo. He's like, Oh, we got the white beater in there. You know what I'm saying? So little things like that that nobody pays attention to even has purpose. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Black Sox with Michigan back in the day, the Fab Five, right? All exactly. those type of things, changing changing the culture. Uh, and you talk about music too, and I'm glad you talk about music. I'm a big music guy, and I remember I remember hip-hop. I remember... I remember Run DMC, and then I remember all the stuff coming up. Like I remember Rick Rubin producing a bunch of stuff in his NYU dorm room. You know, Eric B. Rakim. I mean, there's so much great. There's so much great music that came out. Let's say what, eighty six, eighty eight, eighty nine. Right, trailblazing. You know, a couple years right there. Who was the one person you always wanted to interview music-wise that you never got a chance to interview, that you that you were like, I really want to do a story? Probably Rakim. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably Rakim without question. I, you know, by the time 88 came around, um, you know, as it, it, important, if you, really, if you really go back and look at the music that came out of hip-hop from 88, it's, you know, 88, you talk about a golden era. That's, that's, that's a platinum year. That, that yep. year right there, the stuff that just came out really – is you you can really if you want to reduce the entire culture hip hop down to one year eighty eight would be that year eighty eight yeah. was incredible um, and at that time Rakim had reached the status you know um, just from an underground standpoint that he may be the the epitome of what an MC was about to become from a lyrical standpoint right. The you know, delivery, had, the tone of his voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had that, realness. It's only he had he had a certain coolness. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, and 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 the stuff he was talking about, it wasn't just putting words together to rhyme. You know, um, he was there, there was, it was there was a depth there. Yes, and he always spoke about the third eye and looking at things through the third eye. You know, um, that eye of wisdom, and he was applying those to his lyrics. Um, and, and what he actually just meant to me and, and how he just sunk in um, out of everybody, you know, as much as I love Ron, you know, as, as much as I respected, you know, Coogee Rap, who I wound up did interview, he would have been my answer if I had not spent time with him and did a story on him. Coogee Rap would have been the one. Uh, never got a chance to talk to Big Daddy Kane. You know, never really sat down with KRS, who I think is... Oh, KRS-One's amazing. I mean, lyr- lyrical Yeah, yeah second or third man. greatest MC of all time. But to me at that time, everything, everything Rakim stood for back then was probably the same as, you know, um, everything Kendrick Lamar stands for right now. You know, they're, they're generational MCs. And if there was ever an MC I would have loved to spoken to um, and sat down and really chopped up, not just about their career, but about music in general, especially black music. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be, it would be Rakim. And you have... I, I, I named my son Rakim, so you know that's there you go. <laughs> yeah, and that's what UMTV raps is that year too, right? '88, I believe. Yeah, they came. Out. I think in '87, maybe a year. Yeah, but they're, they're they're prevalent in that time. I think they dropped. Uh, I think they dropped '87. Maybe I had to go back and check. Yeah, and that's huge. I mean, because the the, the culture changes big time. You know, everything's just more. It's more out there. You know, you see it in yeah. basketball at that time period too. You really yeah. do. I mean, it's 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 amazing. It, it, and you wrote you wrote for ESPN too, which was interesting because that was another magazine that basically came out there to try to start challenging. I believe you know they go from you know the sports leader you know in in TV, but now they're going to the magazine route. Can you tell us a little bit about your time working for ESPN, writing for them? What did you think writing for them? Well, here's the thing. I, okay, this is this is this is really funny. This is really funny. 
When I first came over to ESPN, which was in 2005, Disney had not bought the company yet, right? Okay. So, um, one of the, I don't want to say addendments, but part of the language inside my contract in 2005 with ESPN was that I contribute to the magazine. Um, so, the, 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 the deal that was put on the table in the language side of my contract was providing written content for ESPN.com as a columnist, providing um, written content for ESPN Magazine as a columnist, providing, you know, radio appearances, providing television appearances, uh, being a part of uh, ESPN Films, you know, and, and making appearances on shows like sports center Roma sports Green, century Sports century exactly right so yeah. all, all that all that is involved in my contract with them um the magazine piece here's what's funny the i was supposed to have a column in the magazine and never wound up coming about because from my understanding I, I wasn't the type of writer that the editors of the magazine were looking for. My style wasn't what they were looking for as a quote unquote columnist. And I don't, to be honest with you, I, you know, I don't think they were fans of Scoop Jackson. It's cool. I get it. But since I'm contractually, you know, since I'm being paid for it through contract, gotta find a way to get me in the magazine, right? So, my first assignment for the magazine, like the minute I got there was, we need a feature story on LeBron James. Like, okay, you know, LeBron's in the league two years by now, right? And I'm like, cool, that's easy. You know, I've, I've, I've known, you know, we built LeBron through Slam, you know, LeBron, LeBron and I know each other. I was part of his first campaign with Nike, you know. LeBron's good, LeBron's like family, you know. I know the old crew. So I go out and Talk to LeBron, hey, man, he doesn't even know that I left Slam and come over to ESPN and, you know, represent ESPN the magazine. So I, you know, go and like, hey, man, you know, I'm trying to get I'm over ESPN now. I'm trying to do a story for you of a magazine. So he said, yo, um, you know, I don't, I ain't going to say the word to you. But he's like, I, you know, I don't mess with them. I'm like, what do you mean you don't mess with them? He said, no, I, I, I don't mess with ESPN the magazine. I don't mess with them at all. I, I don't even mess with ESPN. And I'm like, yo, what's this about? He's like, so you don't know? I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So LeBron goes ahead and tells me the whole story about his relationship up at that time with ESPN. And, you know, how, you know, they, yeah, it was just, you know, they basically tried to ghostwrite a magazine on him. I'm mag no, ghostwrite a book on him. Wow. But they had a writer, like, inside with the Cleveland Cavaliers for a whole year. Oh, wow. That was basically trying to secretly write a book about him. And then somebody ESPN said something bad about his mother. So he was done with them. But here's the thing. So when LeBron was like, I don't mess with them, ESPN knew that. Oh, they sent you because, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I'm not knowing, so I'm like, nah, that, that, <laughs> that, 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 that's not going to happen, okay. And 
then they did something else with me uh, where they sent me out to do a story on the San Antonio Spurs and the culture of San Antonio Spurs went down and uh, wanted to do something with that. And the angle I was coming back with wasn't exactly the angle that the magazine wanted. They wanted a certain story told. And I'm like, well, that certain story is not there. Yeah. So they assigned that story to another writer. <laughs> wow. So I'm like, okay, I see what the magazine is. Then came a situation where they came to me and said, you know, hey, school, we're doing a story on, we're doing a what if theme issue. Like, what ifs? What if? And it's the crazy, like, we're doing the craziest case scenarios of what ifs. And we want you to do the part on what if the New Jersey Nets win the um, NBA title? Like, all right, cool, we can do that, right? So I write the piece. I think it's like a 500 word piece on, you know, what if the, you know, submit it. Come to find out, there is no what if theme issue. Oh, wow. There's a New York Nets, a New Jersey Nets, excuse me, cover story about the Nets where they run my piece as a sidebar. Oh, as man. if I'm the one that's saying this. Wow. Wow. Now, this is during the time when Stephen A had, quite frankly, his first television show with them, right? Yeah. Stephen A has me on his show. Like, what the hell are you talking about? The Nets are going to win. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So now, now, here's the thing. I cannot dog ESPN on their own. You know what I'm saying? I can't. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. So I'm. I'm literally taking hits by Stephen A. on his show about like, like yeah, man, I know. I'm you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just taking it because I can't blast them like that. Yeah, even I should have, but I can't blast them like that. After that, man, I went and talked to John Skipper, the president of the company. I'm like, John, I'm never writing for this magazine ever. And I explained him everything that was done. He said, Scoop, I get it. You're right. You shouldn't have to. And to their credit. For years, they paid me for writing for the magazine. I never had to because of that stuff. Those three incidents, back to back to back. I'm like, nah. Yeah. I'm not. They, they you know, that's that's not happening. Yeah. So that's the long answer to uh, what's it like write for the magazine? <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> that's amazing, man. That's but, wow. but writing for dot com was a little bit different because um where I didn't write for the magazine, we made up for writing at dot com. You know, they they had me as one of their, you know, national as you know, one of their national columnists. And then, you know, once they kind of phased out the column things, they had me as a, you know, their national senior writer. And I stayed there with dot com for eleven years. Wow. Writing for eleven years. Um and was able to write some things that I thought were um important. I, I think a lot I think some of the stuff there was very important. And I think a, uh, career-wise, a lot of stuff I did with Slam Magazine back in the day seems to be more recognized. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as proud of the work as I did with ESPN.com as I am with the work that you know I did. The 11 years I spent at Slam, I think I'm just as proud as the work 11 years of writing I did at ESPN Magazine, even though it doesn't get recognized and even close to being the same way. But I was able to cover things in sports, not just basketball. So I was able to like branch out and like really take the same sensibilities um, and, and, and same broadness of scope 
and apply them to areas in sports that had I stayed with SLAM, I wouldn't have been able to do because I would have been, it would have been basketball specific. Right, so which is which you always wanted to do. A lot of things. And, yeah. and to be honest with you, I also went, I, t- I tried to change the way sports columns were written um, when I went to ESPN. You know, sports columns were kind of triggered to be done a certain way. And even though Bill Simmons was was writing long form columns, when I came in, I wanted to change that seven, eight hundred word format that columns are written and flush them out into longer form storytelling. Like really get in and, and get some reporting in, but shape like small feature stories and add opinion to them so that they still are columns. They still are op-eds, but there's a different base in them that's not strictly opinionated. I want right. to change the way columns are being done. And I, I thought that that would be a great way to separate and, and you know, extend and add to the culture um, that, once again, you know, I, I was trying to do from my first get. And I think I, I think I, I'm not gonna say I was successful there, but I think I did. If you could look back at stories, I think I did. You know, you you can see the effort was there. You can see the effort there. The work was there. And you know, like I said, Bill Simmons was doing something of a deal. But if you look at Bill's work, Bill's work was basically just stream of consciousness and basically kind of dealt with his involvement to a certain subject matter. Yes. So he he, he connected with readers in a different way, and they, most of them, for the most part, were personalized. And a lot of Bill's writing, because he has a great sense of humor, with just stream of consciousness. You know, it's kind of like the difference between Jay-Z and Rakim as an MC. You know, Jay-Z is a phenomenal MC because he can, he can give you stuff off the top of the dome and memorize stuff off the top. He can do a song, a great song in four minutes. Rakim is like, it took me four days to write It Ain't No Joke. You know what I'm saying? Now, I'm not going to yeah. say one is greater than the other, but I'm the more guy that I'm going to spend four days to get this right because I'm trying to give you something with substance. Yeah. I can't just give you stream of consciousness like that and have it still mean something two or three years from now. Bill, Bill, always, to, Bill always yeah, seemed but, like one of those guys that was like your buddy yeah. that just was writing and you're like, yeah. oh, my buddy writes for ESPN. Like He always yeah. seemed like that guy. You know what yeah, I mean? He is, and that's his thing. That's exactly what he was. And he came off to people that way. My approach to writing and the craft of writing was totally different. So since they already had Bill Simmons there, you know, I'm trying to create another voice, which means we could do it the same way. That just wasn't me because I wanted to not be your friend. I wanted you to walk away thinking about something you never thought of before. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's it. That's That's huge. And that's, but that's what I tried to do at dot com that I wasn't able to really do at the magazine, but I tried to make up for it on .com. Well, and that's, and that's why I'll be really honest with you. Is I loved having you on today because you're making me think. Like, and, and I know everybody listening to this pod is going to think, and I think that's important. I think that's one of the things that we're not doing nowadays. Unfortunately, there's a lot less people that are thinking and educating themselves more. And, and uh, you know, yeah, the people you think- don't have to now, though. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, and I'm not poo-pooing on ESPN, but, you know, the brilliance of ESPN is that they created a lane that nobody did with this, with, with the embrace debate you know, manifest that they've spread across all platforms that are connected to them and, and they've created 
they created and reshaped sports culture, especially from a media standpoint, in a way that everything's about these short segmented conversations. And that lends itself to these short segmented engagements when it comes to reading, when it comes to viewing, when it comes to listening, you know, so everything is like, yo, you don't have time to do that because this embrace debate is about getting a certain amount of thing, getting a certain amount in and a certain amount of time, you got to move on to the next. And they've created a great culture that has worked, that has shifted the way sports media has covered. And that's the beauty of what they've done. But what to me is lost in that is leaving without any in-depth conversation for you to actually think about things. Yes. Because when you're always in a rush, you do not have time to think. Correct. And the beauty of what ESPN has done is that they've also had the connection of digital media and the expediency of how digital media works as far as retaining and pushing out information to lend itself greatly to that debate manifest that they have out there that we're all functioning about. So now, basically, they have a social and media format that validates what they've already established. Like, let's keep this thing going. Everything's got to be quick. So there's no longer going to be Bill Simmons' columns and stories going to be there. We're going to get you in quick and say, we're going to do it visually, video. So we're going to eliminate that whole column stuff, all these columnists that we have on board, you know, the Howard Bryant's, you know, the Bill Simmons, the Scoop Jackson, the Jamel Hills, the um, Gene Wojnarowski, you know, all, all of the Pat Forties, all these cats writing columns and it's shaping the way that we think, gone. We're going to break this down to whoever we're going to have debate against each other, whether it's Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser or Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless or Bomani and whoever, you know what I'm saying? We're going to have them debate. We're going to give you two minutes on this and we're going to move on to the next. And guess what happens after that? Now you're getting platforms that are doing the same thing. Yeah. Oh, Twitter, 150 characters, bam, boom, you out. TikTok, 20 seconds, bam, boom, you out. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's make this thing go. So it's kind of worked out, but what's been lost in that is the ability to use writing and other forms of communications as ways to make people think. You couldn't have put it any better. I, I, I can't disagree with you whatsoever. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything else to say on, on that, to be honest with you. I'll be really honest. I mean, I, I miss reading columns. I miss personalities. I miss, you know, thinking about things. A lot of times when you're watching and viewing things, you're just watching something. But when you're reading, you're digesting. You can go yeah. back. You can digest it more. You can go, I'm gonna want, I want to learn about this more and, and find other information. When you're watching two people yell at each other sometimes, it's, right. what are we getting out of the conversation? Speaking of that, you've been so generous with your time. I super appreciate it. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we let you out of here? No, man, I'm good. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a plugger. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a plug. I'm a writer. So. <laughs> um, I'm good, Zach, man. I'm good. I'm, I appreciate y'all having me on. I appreciate spending time. You know, I always love good conversations. So. Oh, it, it was amazing today. Zach, is there anything you want to add before we let Scoop out of here? Yeah, I just want to say thanks, man. I mean, like I said, you're a huge reason why I love basketball, and you're a huge reason why I started to dive in and start looking up some of the legends of the game, like the Earl Manigault, the Joe Hammonds, the Pee Wee yeah. Kirklands. Like, you're a huge reason why – 
I became a student of the game. So I just appreciate you, man. This is an honor. So thank nah, you so thank, much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm going to give you one more thing. I just forgot about that. I mentioned going back to that slam Allen Iverson cover. Also to just put the, put the bow tie, to put the cherry on the top of this is a, of the importance of that singular issue and a singular cover. You know, that's the one that like blew up Mitchell and Ness, right? Ah, because of the, yeah. 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 Look at, look at, like Mitchell and Ness was a small Philadelphia based company. Yeah. Tony had them make that Allen Iverson jersey, which is actually a field, I mean, a um, a Greer jersey. Yeah. It's a Hal Greer jersey that they got, but because they put it on a throwback issue with the number three, the Hal Greer were, you know, back with Philly, that, Changed the entire dynamic of throwback jerseys because that was the first one, and Mitchell and Ness as a company, like wow. they was they were just one small company up until that moment. Wow! So that that issue that issue is is man, it's so significant, groundbreaking to, uh, to, to almost anything. So I, I feel blessed to even be a part of that. Well, yeah, that was huge. I mean, Mitchell and Ness in the early 2000s, I mean, that was the jersey oh, you bought and the amount of th- – because you couldn't get throwbacks back then. Oh, and, you couldn't. You know, and, and uh, man, the prices on those two, holy shit. I know. <laughs> hey, look, I, I don't know if Tony did it. He may have Tony smart enough to do it. He should have gotten stock options. Oh, man, he would have killed it. The minute it. he agreed and, and, and asked for that order for that, Allen, for that, you know, throwback. You know, he should have been like, look, can I get some stock options in the company for what's about to happen to you all? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, between Snoop and Jay-Z and everybody wearing them in the videos, forget it. Years of the whole throwback thing. Yep. I yeah. mean, seriously, and I'm not putting it on one man, but Tony really did. If you go back to that, I don't, you know, throwback was a term, but it really didn't have, it didn't have anything tangible to attach to it. That issue gave throwback something tangible to attach to it. Yeah. It started with the jerseys, and then what happened after that? Jordans. Yep. Oh, you know, man. and they just flipped throwback to retro. And there you go. Yeah. Yep. And then and then your eighty-five Jordans, if you still got them, are worth sixty, seventy grand. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's insane. Scoop, thanks again, man, for coming to the show. I mean, we could talk for hours. Really appreciate how generous you were with your time, man. Stay safe out there, and, and thanks Anytime, again, fellas. I appreciate you. Let's, uh, you know, down the line, let's do a part two. We can. We can we, we didn't really, there's a lot of stuff we didn't even dive into. So, yep, if we can make it happen, I'd be blessed. I would love to. I would absolutely, absolutely love that. What a great episode. I mean, Scoop, I mean, I can't even believe we got him on the show. Unbelievable. Such a great guy. Awesome with his time. And to learn that backstory about the cover with Iverson, and like, you know, we said in the interview, I mean, I still had that in my head. I could see the whole cover when he's explaining it. I mean, just amazing conversation today. Yeah, I mean, he's one of those uh, he's one of those guys that really inspired me to love basketball just from his writing. I mean, as a subscriber to Slam Magazine, and I just remember uh, reading all of his work, and he's somebody that just really made me love basketball. So today was an honor, man. I mean, he's he's one of the best to do it in the game. He's a Chicago legend. I mean, truly an honor. Uh, just blown blown away with uh, our conversation today. One, well, I think he was stoked to be able to talk about his own basketball you know, game, which I think is cool. A lot of those guys don't get to talk about that. And then the music aspect of it was fun too. 
because he was yeah. super knowledgeable about music and it, it, to to realize that music is what he really wanted to write about to start off with you know and then you know he ends up writing for sports magazines i mean and music magazines too but yeah he's he's slam was a slam was a thing man it was definitely something that changed the game you know and i don't mean basketball the game in general of sports magazines back then and culture too when you think about it I that's mean, what i mean with, i mean with all the covers i mean like you said the iverson cover but I mean, even like the LeBron and Telfair cover, I mean, there's so many covers out there that are just stuck in my head. And I had all the covers like hanging on my wall, like, you know, in my room. I mean, I collected all of them, man. And I mean, all the slam up. So very cool stuff. And learning his, uh, the backstory on his name was, was awesome. But yep. also just to find out that he could really hoop, that was really cool to just kind of hear that he had the respect from other NBA players. I mean, that, that's big time right there. That's well, big. I mean, how cool is it to say that you played two semi-pro games, <laughs> you know, and, and you were you were taking the place of Avery Johnson. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's pretty dope, man. I'm not going to lie. That was awesome. And he was he was really cool. You know, it was a lot of stuff about the, the writing part aspect i think yeah. was awesome and the and and having a conversation you know and 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 scoop will hit you up for part two for sure man because you know it was such a cool conversation speak of cool conversations you guys doing what you're doing for us man gets us people like scoop i mean it's it's amazing to see you know every day check the email and there's you know four or five countries we chart in which is unbelievable to think i mean we lost track you know we do it for the love of it but man it's always cool to see people listening from all these different countries like ones i can't even pronounce <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty rad man i'm not gonna lie and it's it's you guys listening do you know giving us reviews five star ratings you know you know commenting on social media you know it's really important to us so we just want to say thanks like we always do at the end of every episode because it really does still mean a lot to us and it always will so um zach is there anything you want to add before we get out of here yeah i just want to say big thanks to scoop jackson i mean it's always very very cool when somebody that you looked up to and really um you know appreciate their work you get to talk to them they turn out to be such a great person and just such a great conversation like that's what makes it really fun to do this is when you get to talk to people that meant a lot to you and you know who really helped you love the game of basketball and then when they turn out to be great guys like scoop i mean that's that's the ultimate and i just want to give a quick shout out to guys like zach marbury marcus banks like they've worked out my high school girls team um, I mean, just a, a lot of really cool connections through this podcast. I'm just blown away with, uh, you know, how much love the game of basketball can bring you. So I just appreciate all of our guests for sure. Yeah, absolutely cool. And and I knew once, you know, once he jumped on the Zoom call right before I hit record, I was like, he's going to be cool. You know, and oh, yeah. it's always it's always great, man, because sometimes you meet people that you idolize and they just don't end up being what you think. You know, they always say the be be careful what you wish for when you meet people that you look up to but scoop you know it was super cool man and, and uh you know what a great interview so thanks again guys for listening appreciate it be good yourselves be good to others stay safe out there peace peace